We're in the early days of December 2017. It's just hard to believe. I was looking at the super summer pictures, and it seems like we just did super summer, but here we are, December 3rd. So we've got, Ben, if I did the math right, it's like 22 days to Christmas. And so um, what I'd like to do for the next three weeks is deal with Christmas according to Luke, Christmas according to Matthew, and there's a reason we're doing it in that order, not Matthew first, and then uh, finish in two weeks from today, Lord willing, with Christmas according to John. And uh, as we dive into this Christmas feast, spiritually speaking, let's uh, pray for our teachability and also for those who physically protect and serve us. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, we do look at these pictures of these peace officers uh, that were re- are really martyrs, and we think of the policemen bowing down in prayer at uh, Ground Zero. It reminds me of the painting of George Washington at Valley Forge. And then we think of this collage of uh, active military, uh, all of whom we either know or have people here and know dearly, and they're all important to us. And we thank you for their men and women, younger and older adults. We thank you for their uh, hearts to serve and their courage to go to where the shots are being fired or where the building is burning. And I pray that especially for Christians in those roles, Lord, please use them as leaders and role models and keep their testimony and their faith strong. And I pray for their uh, immediate family, their extended family who support them and also who in many ways serve with them. And certainly as uh, we acknowledge your sovereign control over history and all the events of history, we also know you work through human choice and initiative, and that includes sometimes evil. And this is a dark, fallen, broken world. And until Jesus comes back, we're going to need police officers, and we're going to need an active military. And uh, we're going to need... uh, those who are willing to uh, run where the dangers are. And most of us would rather hide or call someone else to do that. So we pray for all these guys and gals. And Father, I pray that uh, you would make this text come alive. Um, we're reading a text that uh, was written in roughly 60 AD, and you've preserved it. And we've got translations on our laps. But we pray the Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to write this gospel might be the agent of illumination in our hearts as we come um, not looking to critique and not looking to learn uh, just uh, academic uh, or factual information and not just so we can have ammunition to criticize other people, but as we come very humbly as students, as disciples of Jesus uh, to feed on, on the word that describes the very events of his birth and his incarnation. And so, Father, just uh, empower that dynamic, and I pray the Holy Spirit would empower uh, us to receive and believe and apply the truths and the implication of uh, what we're going to read and study this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Christmas season is upon us, and, you know, it can be a stressful time for everybody, and that includes pastors and youth ministers and elders and deacons and even Santa Claus, and recently... uh this guy went to his psychiatrist. Let's say he went to his Christian counselor, and the counselor says it's normal to get depressed around the holidays, especially when we put too much pressure on ourselves. It was actually Santa getting kind of psyched up to go do his thing. 
But it uh, turns out there's a lot of indications that Santa has been overstressed lately, Natalie. I mean, there are hundreds of indications of that. But you know what? Uh, Lisa, I'm not going to waste your valuable time going over all of those. So I've boiled it down to what I consider the top three signs that Santa might be overstressed. He is secretly jealous of the ministries of the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, and James Mitchell. So he's very jealous of other people's ministries. Yesterday he posted on Facebook that on December 26th of this year, he's leaving the North Pole, moving to Miami, Florida, and becoming a male swimsuit model. Yeah, I was actually thinking about doing that myself. So. Earlier this morning, he fired his brightest reindeer, Rudolph, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and his tallest elf, Ron Miller, and a lot of people... Don't know that Ron uh, is an elf, but uh, that's his official hat there. Now, Ron, I'm pretty sure you remember, you know, I've, I've kind of uh, cut uh, that image out of a, a bigger picture. You remember where you were when I took that picture? <laughs> is it possible I want it to look clunky to be funny? Now, do you remember that picture? We're actually, we're going to go to Bethlehem uh, in a few minutes via the power of PowerPoint, and that's a picture of Ron and Julie in the uh, the Church of the Nativity, which is a, a traditional site. We have authentic sites. Uh, the southern steps of the temple are the that's those are the authentic steps Jesus walked on. The house of Caiaphas, that's where the high priest slash judge was. That's where Jesus was rejected on Thursday night and thrown into a holding tank. And you can see it. That's an authentic site. Then you have the Church of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the site for that church was determined in 325 A.D., and it probably is pretty close to where that sermon happened, but it's not the exact place. Same thing with the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. We don't know exactly where the manger stood in 6 or 5 B.C. when Jesus was born. But there's been a church that's been in Bethlehem for thousand plus years, and that's the uh, shot of Ron and Julie inside of that church. But as I said, we'll look at some more pictures in a minute. So yeah, we're going to talk about the the events that took place the evening of the birth of Jesus, and we're going to distinguish that from what Matthew tells you, uh, which is actually talking about events that happened after the birth of Jesus. But before we look at our main verses, chapter 2, 1 through 20, let's talk about context. Uh, Luke arranges the first part of his gospel very deliberately with sets of paired truths. He's not making any of this up, but he's arranging his material so you can see certain parallels. And after the prologue of the book, verses 1 through 4, chapter 1, we have the announcement of the coming birth of John the Baptist. Now, technically, Sherry, as you know, John the Baptist wasn't a Baptist. He was Jewish. He was a Jewish prophet. But he baptized people by immersion, so they called him John the Baptizing One. So that's the, the Gospel of Luke starts with the announcement of a supernormal birth because his parents are too old and, and she can't have children. And then, boom, she has children the good old-fashioned way. That's followed up immediately by a narrative about the announcement of the coming birth of Jesus the Christ supernaturally, virgin conception. Uh, let's look at that. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. 
Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin who was engaged to be married to a man whose name was Joseph. And he was of the descendants of David. Why is that important? Hey, Clay, the Messiah, based on the Abrahamic promises, has to be uh, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a Jew, tribe of Judah, family of David. So he's got, he's got a, his humanity has to line up with that. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was very perplexed. Like uh, when your boss comes in and says, uh, hey, Scott, you've been doing a great job here lately, but, you know, you're waiting. What's he going to say? So this angel shows up, says, hey, how you doing? Uh, boom, you are favored of God. Uh, the Lord's with you. And she's thinking, what's he going to want to do? What's he going to want to do with me? But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Leading question. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. And that's May with the present active imperative, stop being afraid. She's afraid. There's nothing to be afraid about. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, even though you're a virgin, virgin conception, can't reproduce this in a laboratory, and bear a son, and you're going to name him not Joseph. The the, uh, uh, the tradition was typically named the first son after the father, in this case the stepfather, half-father, we're going to say. Uh, we're going to call him Yeshua because that name means God's Savior. And he'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, God the Father, will give him the throne of his father David. Right? Talking about millennial kingdom there. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now go back to verse 26. Now in the sixth month. The sixth month of what? This is where the context comes in. What's the first thing we read about in Luke? About the announcement of the supernormal birth uh to Elizabeth and, and Zacharias, who are too old to have kids, they're going to get pregnant, okay? Six months into John the Baptist's pregnancy, uh, Mary is told she's going to have a supernatural pregnancy, right? Uh, that's And then Luke continues. After those announcements, we have the actual birth of John the Baptist, followed by the actual birth of Jesus the Christ. We'll look at that passage today. And we see the adoration of Jesus as an infant, the advancement of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in Jerusalem, and then the, bapt- the beginning of his ministry, the baptism of Jesus, where the Father declares him righteous, then the temptation of Jesus where he demonstrates his righteousness. But let's look at verses 1 through 20. You see that effect? How do you know I love you? Because I do effects like that, just to make it interesting. right? Now, we'll break down Luke 2. Let's go to Luke 2 now, 1 through 20 like this. First, the historical background. Let's read verses 1 through 5, chapter 2. Now, in those days, wonder what days he's talking about there. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus in Rome. The Roman Empire occupied the entire region of Israel and much more at that point in the first century A.D. that a census, a tax census, be taken of all the inhabited earth. And that's the way the Romans referred to the Roman Empire. They knew there were barbarians outside their realm, but they referred to their empire as the inhabited earth. The, the important people lived under their domination. And Luke, either ironically or sarcastically, and probably both, is using their terminology there because he knows God controls the whole universe and the Romans don't even control the whole earth, really. They just act like they do. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone 
was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city of origin. And Joseph also, who lives in Nazareth in northern Israel, went up from Galilee, the region of northern Israel, from the city of Nazareth, city in Galilee, to Judea, the southern region, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, about six miles south of Jerusalem, because he was of the house and family of David. But we already knew that, didn't we? In order to register for this tax census, along with Mary, who had been engaged to him, and now was married, but they haven't consummated the marriage, but she's pregnant, right? Go back to chapter 2, verse 1. We've got real people, real places, and then the rest of the story in these five verses. Now, in those days, what what are those days, Ken? I mean, and you might think, you might just assume, well, in the days of the history that are described for the next two verses, and that's true, but it's also in the days of the immediate context here that you see in uh, the few verses just at the end of chapter 1. And let's see what I wanted to read there. Go to uh, verse 76. Now in verse 1, we've got uh, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, making a prophecy about what his son will grow up to be and do. And we read in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 76, and Luke assumes you've just read those verses because otherwise you wouldn't be reading verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, right? And Zechariah, as a prophet, predicting accurately what's going to happen, you child, John the Baptist, not Jesus, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now, according to Islam, the statement of faith that makes one a Muslim is called the Shahada, and you say in a public ceremony when you convert to Islam, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And they don't mean there aren't other prophets. They mean he's the last, final capstone prophet. Look at this uh, statement in your scripture, which actually trumps that. And, of course, the Quran comes 600 years after Luke wrote all this, roughly. But to you, child, you're going to be called the final prophet leading up from all the Old Testament prophets to John the Baptist. In many ways, John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet living in the Old Testament era but written about in the New Testament Gospels. You'll be the prophet, the prophet, the final capstone prophet of the Most High. But you will go on to prepare the way of the Lord, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And then no extra charge for this, but that's Zacharias' father saying he's going to preach Jesus and forgiveness of sins. What does Paul say about the ministry of uh, John the Baptist? The Apostle Paul in Romans, Ephesians, no. Tommy, in Acts 19, Paul's quoted as saying, John the Baptist baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him, Jesus, who is coming after him. That is Jesus. Pretty neat when you see all those parallels. Go back to Luke 2. So in those days, the days in the aftermath of the birth of John the Baptist, who's going to be the ultimate capstone prophet, trying to convince Israel that Jesus is the Messiah. And also, in the historical context, during the period where Caesar Augustus, the second Roman emperor after Julius Caesar, Augustus was adopted as an adult by Julius Caesar. His name was Octavian. They changed his name to Augustus. And he's in charge of the entire Roman Empire at this point. The decree came from him, an executive order, that a tax census be taken of the entire Roman Empire it took 17 years to pull this thing off because they didn't have 
email back then, or at least it was very slow. You had to use a landline and really slow things down. But the inhabited earth thing is just uh, Luke either sarcastically or ironically saying these people actually think they control the whole earth, that part of the earth that matters. And then he says this was the first tax census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now there is uh, some uh, visuals of Caesar Augustus. And a lot of people don't know this, but there are really <coughs> two Roman emperors that come into play uh, in regard to the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, the Lord Jesus was born while Augustus was the emperor, and then he died in 14 A.D., that is Augustus. Tiberius Caesar became the emperor after that time, and so for the ministry and life of Jesus, you see Tiberius, Emperor Tiberius, as the Roman emperor. Uh, Nero's important because uh, he had Paul and Peter killed. Um, Titus is important because as a general for the Romans in 70 AD, he destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, later became uh, an emperor himself. And then Domitian was the emperor when John wrote the book of Revelation. So we're talking about real people, real places, real events. And there's the Roman Empire, and it was quite a huge... It was a, an administrative nightmare to kind of oversee with. They were actually using uh, just regular standard typewriters. They didn't have word processors and stuff. I mean, just the record keeping would have been immense. They eventually broke into two pieces. But uh, look at that. See that little circle there? That's the little portion of the Roman Empire that the gospel events take place in. Much bigger. The Roman Empire is much bigger than just Israel, but that's the epicenter of what's going on. Now the verse in uh, the statement in verse two is sometimes pulled out by some skeptics as a historical error, and there's actually a couple things going on there. But the long story short is most translations, just like they translate um, "God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son," even though they know the word monogenes doesn't mean only begotten, means unique, only one of its kind, Alan. But King James said it that way, so most modern translations use that because they know it'll sound weird if they don't. Uh, King James says this, the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And that's not exactly what happened, but it's okay because they just mistranslated the preposition there. Uh, by the way, we're going to suggest that the Lord Jesus was born, in, and thank you, Blanche, for clarifying the fact he wasn't born on December 25th necessarily. He could have been. Uh, the best source I know says Jesus was born in late 6 B.C. or early uh, 5 B.C., so we're talking about December, January, or February of those two years. But we know, uh, based on multiple sources, that Herod the Great, the king who tried to have the baby Jesus killed, uh, died in 4 B.C. That being true, Jesus must have been born before 4 B.C. Now, where do we get those numbers? The Dominic, you can blame the Dominican priests. They came up with the calendar we're using about a thousand years after the fact. And it works pretty well, but they missed the date relative to when Jesus was born. It's just a human error. It's not an error in the scripture. But the best historical sources indicate that Quirinius was governor of Syria in 6 to 7 AD, not 6 or 5 BC. Now there is, there are some references, not direct data, that seem to indicate he may have been governor twice. And some people explain it away that way. But the preposition that's translated while, or it's an adverb actually, isn't it? Uh, uh, prote in the original language that Luke wrote in, actually 
in this context means before, and Harold Honer's Cambridge dissertation emphasizes that. But you're going you're gonna to hear people say that's an issue, but it's really not. It ought to be translated before. The point is, these events of the birth of Christ are happening in real historical history, and more importantly, in very strategic biblical history. Um, and uh, boom, let's look at the map. Uh, I've got Galilee, the northern area where Mary and Joseph lived, and circled, and then Judea in the city of Bethlehem circled. That's where they are uh, located at the birth of Jesus. Why are they in Bethlehem? The tax census. They've got to go fill out government paperwork. They've got to go fill out Obamacare, as it were. Like, you know, levy the mandate on you. And if we blow that up, uh, make it bigger, I mean, uh, you can see Bethlehem. <laughs> You've got to be careful when talking about blowing up things in the Middle East, but uh, you know what I meant, right? I'm trying to quit saying that. Uh, Jerusalem there is just due north of Bethlehem, about six miles away. Let's go to Bethlehem. I didn't take that picture, but I like it because you can see the city on a hill. It's very hilly, and uh, you've got the sheep there. Now, I'm not a veterinarian, but that first guy looks kind of weird to me, but I'm, I haven't been around a lot of sheep lately. And there's another shot, and there's another shot. So there's still there are still shepherds in and around Bethlehem to this day. But let me show you what it looks like today. Uh, there's a wall there. And walls do work, by the way, because uh, a few years before we were there in 06, they built walls. Israeli security people built walls at certain certain checkpoints where Palestinian people with bombs or knives were killing Jewish little girls and boys just to make a political point and try to make points with Allah. And they put these walls up because when you go from say, Jerusalem to Bethlehem, you have to go into an area uh, that's controlled by the Palestinians. And trust me, there have been no attacks on Christian pilgrims, they call us. Uh, they also call us customers behind our backs. And they want to sell us stuff, so they're happy for us to come in and out of there. But to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, you have to take a Jewish bus with a Jewish guide from Jerusalem to this wall. You have to get out, sign a card, um, go through the uh, magnetometer, uh, walk down a hill to the uh, Palestinian bus and get your uh, Palestinian uh, uh, guide. And so he gets paid, the souvenir stands get paid, and everybody's happy, right? But they put those walls up, and they've cut minor, small-sized terrorist attacks by 95% since they put the walls up. Now, guess what? The UN yelled and screamed bloody murder when they were building the walls, but uh, I think most people on both sides are very happy the wall's up there because there are less of these incidents that take place. But let's go to the Church of the Nativity. It's a traditional site. It's not the exact location where the birth of Christ took place. But look at that. It, they, they didn't even know they were going to do this. But when they finished the thing, they realized the roof looks like a cross. It's just amazing. It's kind of like Mount Rushmore. Obviously, wind, rain, erosion, millions of years, you're going to get Mount Rushmore, right? You just throw a building together for a church, it turns out to be a cross, right? No, that was designed. That did not evolve. That was designed. And uh, every uh, year at Christmas Eve, CNN and Fox News and those people will show you the courtyard of the Church of Nativity. And it looks like 10 million people, but it's a relatively small courtyard. You might get a few thousand people in there, but it's not quite as many as it looks. And there is our group entering uh, in the courtyard, going to the little, small little door you have to go through. There's Tom Robertson, there's Jonathan, there's Kathy, there's Debbie, there's Jamie, 
Uh, I think that's Gene there, maybe. Is that you? Maybe? There's the guy from West Virginia. That's Julie, who is the daughter of the, of, uh, the librarian, Jan Cole. Now, Ben, here's what you don't know. If you do an about face, as you're facing the church nativity, if you do an about face, right across the street, you see that. What do you know about that? That's a minaret. What's that? That's where the call to prayer comes from, from the mosque. That's a mosque. I mean, the Muslims, you know, at Golgotha, where Christ was crucified, they uh, they built a bus station right in front of it, put a graveyard on top of it, and built a mosque to the side of it. Now, Jews and Christians go out of our way not to build stuff next to their stuff that might get them mad, but they're happy to build stuff. So what they're basically saying, and they've got a right to do it, but I'm just saying this is not unusual. Uh, they build a mosque so when you go in, and more importantly out of the Church of Nativity, you're going to be looking at one of their things, one of their, their deals. And again, they've got a perfect right to do that there, but that is the pattern. Let's go into the church. There's the Church of the Nativity. And uh, there's our Muslim guide. I don't remember his name, but uh, he seemed like a nice guy. Jamie's taking a picture. Tom's listening. And I've got that serious look where people think, you know, I'm real intense. But it's just, a, it's all, it's not that. I'm just thinking about lunch. You know, it's, it's not necessarily all that intense. And there's Debbie and Kristen in front of a crowd there at the altar. And there's that picture of Ron and Julie that I cropped. And there's Jamie and Kristen and Tom looking on in the left corner there. And that's actually outside and to the side. Um, and some people like to look at themselves 10 years ago and others don't, but to just as long as I've got all this power. Uh, okay, there's Ron, there's Tom, there's Julie, there's Debbie, there's Pam putting her backpack on or checking her watch, one or the other. Uh, in fact, I didn't take this picture. Somebody else did because I'm in the picture. And there's Jonathan. So that's, when you take all the pictures, you never are in any of them. But sometimes people take pictures. Then when you uh, want to go see the traditional site of the birth of Christ, you have to go down some stairs. And there we are going down the stairs to a very crowded place. And if, the funny thing about this picture, did, Ron, did you take these? Or somebody, I've got these from somebody. It doesn't matter. But there's Jan's dad. There's Jan Cole. There's our guide. There's me. Here's a guy, a Palestinian guy, trying to sell me something. Just so you'll know, you know. Can you imagine trying to sell a Muslim something inside the Dome of the Rock? What would happen? What would your life expectancy be at that point? It's not going to happen, man. But there, there's the site. We know it because in 325 A.D., about 250, more than 350 years after the fact, uh, or 325 years after the fact. Helena, the mother of the newly converted uh, Emperor Constantine, who's a Christian now, sends his mom to Israel to find out where all the big events happen. So she shows up like Homer and I could go to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania next week, have $1,000 in our hands, say, hey, Farmer Bill, can you show me where President uh, General Washington's tent was back during the uh, winter of 1777? And, he, and we'll give you $1,000 if you can show us. He said, yeah, I can show you. It's right, right over there, right, right by that tree there. Say, thank you very much. Mark that. We're going to build a souvenir stand. That's what Americans would do. Uh, what Helena did was she had a bunch of money. She said, show me where Jesus was born 325 years ago. And the guy said, 
You're going to give me 10 shekels for that? It's right over here. There it is right there. So with with the best of intentions, they they mark it with a silver star there. And you know you rejoice in the birth of Christ, knowing this is traditional, not the uh, authentic site. There's everybody likes to get a picture there. That's for young people. Debbie and I were too old and, and stiff to actually get down there. We can get down, but it's getting up. It's the it's the difficult when you get older. But here's the thing, you know, Jesus was born in a manger. What was a manger then and now? It's a feeding trough. His manger would have looked more like that. There was no silver stars. Um, that's an artist's configuration of what happened. But it would have been like that. It wouldn't have been with a big star there. And by the way, what does the word Bethlehem mean? House of bread, yeah. So boom. Uh, go back to verse uh, 3 of chapter 2. Everyone was on his way from where they lived to their city of origin of their family to register for the census. So Joseph went up from Nazareth in the northern part to go down to the southern part. They end up in Bethlehem, uh, the house of bread, uh, because uh, that was his family lineage, to register along with Mary, who had been engaged with him when she became pregnant supernaturally, and now they're officially married, but they're not consummating their marriage. So the plan of God goes on. Even though to the naked eye it would look like just too young, he's probably older than she is. It's uh, posited she's probably a late teenager, so let's say she's 18 years old, and he's probably older. He dies before she does, apparently, and and, and there are other factors that indicate he may have been uh, a widower or something when he got married to her, not necessarily, but maybe. But it, they would have just looked like two people coming in, in to register for the census, and that would have been uh, the end of it. Now let's look at verses 6 and 7. That's the historical background and the biblical background. Now let's talk about the normal birth of Christ. To the human eye, it would have looked like a normal uh, vaginal birth. Uh, there would have been no halos over Mary's head or anything like that. When they were there, not at home in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. That firstborn word, prototakos, in the original means first in time. Ellen, or first in rank. And here it means both. She's her first son, supernaturally conceived, and certainly he's first in rank over everything. He's the second person of the Trinity. But uh, this seems to imply there may be more children, and in fact the Gospels indicate Jesus has several half-brothers and half-sisters that they, uh, Mary and Joseph conceived the old-fashioned way. But it says that she gave birth to a son, wrapped him in cloths, King James says swaddling clothes, and laid him in a, in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the end. Now, we might think it's no big deal. We know Jesus was a male. He, uh, she gave birth to Jesus, supernaturally uh, conceived, and he was a son. But that really is important because the Old Testament tells us Jesus is going to send a Savior, and he's not going to be an alien or an angel. He's going to be a human being, and he's not going to be a female. He's going to be a male. And he's not going to be a Gentile, he's going to be a Semite, and he's going to be Jewish. And uh, I've got a bad sore throat, and I just swallowed some kind of acid in the back of my throat, too. Now, they told me when I had my th- throat scoped, I had acid reflux, and I said no. I, in my mind, I didn't say no to Dr. Miller, because he's you know too powerful for me to disagree with, but you got acid reflux, and I thought, no, there's no way I've got that. And then, you know, over the, since then I've realized, yeah, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night with my sore throat burning because I've got stuff, more than you want to know, right? Okay. But anyway, sorry. So I'm not crying yet because this is so meaningful, though it very is. It's just because I got something in my throat. But anyway, 
Yeah, so the fact he's a son is very important, is, is my point. That says one part of a big puzzle, and this is a graphic that shows you a lot of these Old Testament prophecies written hundreds, thousands of years before the advent of Christ, and there that is. Uh, also, Micah 5.2, Micah is an Old Testament prophet written in about 700 B.C. He predicted that the city of Bethlehem, uh, south of Jerusalem, would be the place where the Messiah would be born. And so God is working providentially to time the legal necessity for these this young couple to go to uh, Bethlehem with the birth of the Messiah because he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You know, we uh, uh, man proposes, God disposes. Now it mentions he wrapped him up with cloths. Now you'll read usually liberal critical commentaries will say oh, that was no big deal. They they always wrapped up babies with cloths. No, they didn't. They wrapped up babies' legs with cro- uh, cloths if they thought the legs were malformed. And I've seen a lot of newborn babies uh, within a 24-hour period because as a pastor, it's important for uh, us to pray over them, and I enjoy doing that. Um, and I've never seen... Their, their, their legs look weird to start with, so I guess a lot of them had their legs wrapped up. But you don't, didn't wrap up the whole baby, typically. But they did that this time, so the shepherds would have a signal... Uh, a confirmation that they found the right baby. Now, I don't think there were too many babies that night in the little town of Bethlehem lying in a manger, but just to make sure this was going to be a signal or kind of a highlighter, they found the right one. Trying to be funny, which is a problem with me, but Jesus wrapped up the newborn baby in cloths because the closest 24-hour Walmart was more than six miles away in Jerusalem, and because that's all they had had, had 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 for some reason in those, but they had, at their disposal, they probably had some blankets or some cloths, and they got strips and wrapped him up. The bottom line is, and this is important, James. He looks like a he looks like a person prepared for burial, which is the way they would do people who had died. They'd wrap them up in cloths. Does that sound familiar? Think about the Easter event. You know, uh, they find the cloth still there, but the body's gone. We believe in a supernatural bodily resurrection. So the Gospel of Luke starts. By noting, he looks like he's wrapped up for burial. The Gospel of Luke ends with the dead Christ wrapped up for burial being resurrected. So he's born to die, as, as Blanche sang so beautifully. And why is he coming to die? As a righteous martyr? There have been a lot of righteous martyrs. You know, the Romans crucified thousands of people in the first century that they considered dangerous to Rome. But only one rose from the dead, and only one went voluntarily because hanging between heaven and earth, he pays the sin debt of the world. He's the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but those of the whole world. Okay, historical background. The normal birth in an unusual place, in a stable, in a manger, wrapped up like a dead man. Now let's think about the supernatural birth announcement given to an unusual audience. Okay, look at verse 8. In the same region where this birth has taken place, just outside of town, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly afraid. I always love the King James says they were sore afraid, which means really afraid. Typically, when angels appear to people in the Bible, what's the reaction? Stark terror. These angels are not little babies with wings. They are middle linebacker types that look tough, and God's tough, and his justice isn't pretty, but it's always preceded by God's grace, and quite often these angels are agents of that. But here they're making an announcement. 
So an angel of the Lord stood before them, of the shepherds. Glory of the Lord shone around them. They were very afraid. But the angel said, don't worry. In fact, may plus the present active imperative. Stop being afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of here. I'm, we're on the same side here. I bring you good news, not bad news, of great joy, which will be just for the Jewish people. Is that what it says? Many Jews thought Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, so Jews could believe and be saved, but Gentiles had to convert to Judaism before they could believe and be saved. That was the big issue right after, for the first couple of decades in the early church. That's not what it was at all. Uh, Jesus came to be the Savior of Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. Today in the city of David, you know, right down there, there has been born for you a Savior, the Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. Number one, he'll be the only baby in town lying in a cattle trough. But just to make sure, he'll be wrapped up like a dead man lying in a manger. That's what that means. He'll be wrapped up like a dead man. Because he, his mission is ultimately to die for our sins. And suddenly, and by the way, it says he's standing in front of them. You never see any of these artist representations. These, these things on the Christmas card, don't let your Christmas cards teach you theology. Because they're not drawn by theologians, Carol. They're drawn by artists, you know. You never see an angel stand in front of these guys. You just see the heavenly choir that shows up. But he stands in front of them. They're freaking out, calms them down. And then after the message gets communicated, then suddenly appears supernaturally with the angel, along with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men whom he is well pleased. Wow, that's a supernatural birth announcement, right? That's like nothing you've ever seen before. Now, I said this is an unusual audience, Jack, because shepherds in that culture, we idealize these things. They were like garbage men in our culture. And i got to tell you what, I think our garbage service in Duncan is fantastic. Okay, I've had no problems with it. It just The only problem is, I, I think our street, you know, you, you guys know Debbie and I are special, but so is everybody else, so we're trying to get over that. I really think we're the first street they stop on, because you got to put your stuff out the night before because we're up going, uh, you know, 6.30 or something like that. But the, the garbage guy rolls by our house about 6.45, 7 o'clock. I mean, he's they, they get there really quick, and they do a terrific job. But the problem with being a garbage man, in fact, I was uh, uh, the uh, United Way has a program, uh, Readers or Leaders, and Cameron University has this thing where some of us go read uh, books to elementary kids, at school, and I was at Mark Twain on Friday reading some books to these kids, and it's talking about obeying your parents. And so I said, uh, uh, you, you obey your parents, right, kids? as a kindergarten class. And, yeah, I always say, I always do what my daddy says I should do. I said, do you do, you do, do what your mom says to do? No, like that. And I thought, that was weird. And I said, well, what did your daddy do? And she goes, he's just a garbage man. That's what she said. Now, where does a kindergartner get that? Dad doesn't probably, dad may be very humble and say that, but I bet she's heard that from other people. And, you know, I look at those guys. Those guys work hard. Even the guy driving the truck quite often gets out there and does that. And you don't know if that thing you're going to pick up or try to pick up the throw it in the thing is 90 pounds or, or 90 ounces. But you got to be tough. They, they work hard. And then I think they get very few holidays too. I think they get Christmas. St. Patrick's Day and Easter, and that's about it. They don't get much, man. But the problem with being a garbage man is even though their work, is their work important to us? I mean, what would we do without garbage men? It'd be a mess, 
Really, literally, right? Like New York City. It'd be like New York City is. Um, what they do is critical, but it doesn't have much prestige, Jack. Okay? So we don't necessarily want you to grow up and become a garbage man, but it's a very, I think, should be more respected by us who should respect people who do honest work, and it's critical. But if you were making up a religion and wanted to impress your readers, which is one of the theories about the Gospels, they just made this stuff up and trying to impress people, you wouldn't have garbage men. If you're making it up, you wouldn't have gar. If you're you're making it up, you wouldn't have garbage men. You'd have maybe I don't know um, the Kardashians or somebody. They'd be the first. If you're making it up, they're all dead anyway. Just have the Kardashians walk in and see this thing. They've got garbage men. The culture in the first century saw shepherds like we see garbage men. They had an essential function, and in this case, these shepherds, but they weren't respected like they should have been. It wasn't a prestigious position. And the weird thing is, um, these shepherds, just six miles outside of Jerusalem, would be looking at lambs, most of whom would have been offered up as sacrifices at the temple. And what do the lamb sacrifices at the temple, who do they represent? Yeah. So it kind of makes sense. The guys that are dealing with the visual aids should be the first ones to see. And I guarantee to you, and I don't often do that from the pulpit, these guys were Old Testament believers anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They knew what they were seeing when they got there. And this is why they're so excited to go check it out. And also notice there are no celebrities here. There's nobody that Entertainment Tonight or People Magazine would care about here. Uh, you know, God works through... Abraham Lincoln said God must really love the poor people because he made so many of them. And God must really love like plain Jane people like me. And I referenced the guy that runs the t-shirt shop downtown, but we're not the only just common, ordinary people around here. God uses all kinds of ordinary people to do extraordinary things. The audience, the unusual audience of shepherds, low uh, income level, no prestige, uh, they're overjoyed uh, at the news of the birth. They rush to go see um, the Christ child, and then they share the news with others. Look at verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, you know, sometime tomorrow, let's think about going checking that out. No, let's go straight to Bethlehem. It's right down there. Let's go. Now, some people say they left the sheep to themselves. Guess what? There's always a couple of Debbie Downers, probably aren't looking for the Messiah, don't care, too tired. You guys stay here. You don't care anyway. We'll tell you what we see later. You watch the sheep. We're going to go down and see the Messiah, if you don't mind. Let's go straight to Bethlehem, see this thing which has happened, which the Lord, through the angels, which they understood were messengers of God, has made known to us. So they came in a hurry. I mean, they're, they're not just strolling down there. This is important stuff. They found their way to Mary and Joseph. Only open stable, probably a cave into the side of the wall there, with a, a, a cattle trough with a baby in it, wrapped up like a dead man. And when they had seen this, they told Mary and Joseph about what the angel had said. And so we're going to see Mary treasuring that in a minute. So when they saw this, they uh, made that statement known uh, to those. And when in verse 18, and all who heard it, just this passersby, wondered what's going on here uh, at the, all the things that they were told by the shepherds. So, uh, yeah, they go down there in a rush. Uh, they're happy 
to verify what they've been told. They see exactly what they were told. The baby's going to be wrapped up like a dead man. They realize this is the promised Messiah, uh, much like you know Anna and Simeon a couple weeks ago in the Wednesday night uh, often overlooked heroes and zeros in the Bible. We talked about Anna and Simeon right after the birth of Christ in Jerusalem were looking for the Christ, and they were told they weren't going to die until they saw the Christ. These shepherds actually beat them to the punch. And they're happy to answer questions. They're, they're happy to share the faith. So I think uh, you see a good example of this. Look at verse 19 and 20, the aftermath of all this. Mary treasured all these things. She's uh, treasuring and reflecting and thinking about, yeah, all these things are lining up. And I'm sure the first thing she thinks about is nine months before when that angel said, Hail, you're favorite of God. We've got something big for you. And she's going, what's he going to do? Maybe pregnant? What's her first thought is, who's going to tell Joseph? She, he, he doesn't know this thing. He's going to, this is going to ruin my plans, you know? Well, we'll let him know. You know, it's going to, we'll see next week in Matthew. But yeah, uh, Mary is the first Christian theologian because she's connecting all these dots. Verse 20, the shepherds, the garbage men, low prestige, essential function, uh, went back to work. This is a good example of, uh, heavenly minded and earthly good. You don't have to do one or the other. Sometimes we're so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. Sometimes we're so earthly good we can't actually trust God when we don't understand what's going on. We panic. We uh, doubt, pout, and drop out. Shepherds went back glorifying, praising God for all they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. Take this to heart. Christmas, according to Luke, is the Latin word Emmanuel, which means God with us, which means in Jesus, God directly entered human history and embraced the human condition in real-time space history, not just biblical history, but also what we call secular history. I mean, the Roman Empire, Augustus, Quirinius, all that good stuff. Wrapped up like a dead man because that's ultimately his mission is to go to the cross and to conquer sin and death for us. And all this is consistent with what I call the real, with the real, real meaning of Christmas. And, you know, I always say this, we don't have like, we don't have uh, variety shows like we used to. But, but back in the good old days, when we were young, you know, you had the Andy Williams show, you had the Carol Burnett show, you had the Red Skeleton show. It's not the Red Skeleton show, it's the Red Skeleton show. You had these shows, you know, even even the Dean Martin show. You know, they'd have a Christmas show, and somebody would sing a song and say, you know what, Christmas is great, and it's fun, and it's for the kids, but... Let's never forget the real meaning of Christmas, which is, and you can fill, the, fill in the blank, but it was always a very nice virtue, like peace on earth, or be nice to people, or be more appreciative, or tell people you love you love them. Those are nice things. Uh, just recently on The Little Couple, which is a cable network show about two little people, he's like a t- foot taller than she is, but they're both tiny. Uh, she's a doctor. Uh, I think he kind of manages her money for her. And um, they've adopted two two um, little people, one Will from China and one Zoe from India. I'm not making this up. Have you seen this thing? Well, last week we we record these things, and uh, I think we watched last week's Christmas, uh, last year's Christmas show because they didn't mention the hurricane. But anyway, I wrote this down when she said it. Uh, Doctor Jen Jen Arnold, she goes by Doctor Arnold. She's a she's a baby doctor. She, yeah, the 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 little person. Is a baby doctor in the NICU, you know, which is perfect because she she's actually taller than her patients. But uh, I wasn't going to do that. Uh, but she, this is a direct quote. Uh, you can come to my house, I'll show you a thing. 
She says, well, you know, Christmas is a time for giving, for love, and for peace. It's a time for family and friends. Is that true? I guess so. And am, I'm forgiving. Okay. I'm for love. I'm for peace. Peace out. Uh, I'm for family. And I hope to have some friends at some point in my life. And I'm, all, I'm for all that stuff, you know. But that's not the meaning of Christmas. The real, real meaning of Christmas is the babe in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to see Christmas according to Matthew. And we're going to see the wise men who come about a year after the birth. And we're going to emphasize wise men, you know, still seek him, right, then and now, and wise women. But uh, at this point, I think uh, the one thing I want to get across this year and every year is Christmas is about the incarnation of Christ, that in the person of Christ, you've got the second person of the Trinity who takes on humanity without ceasing to be deity. I don't know how you do that, Abby. I can't do that for you. God had to do that, okay? But one person, two natures, and the God-man Savior is the perfect and only mediator between God and man because as God, his payment is infinite. As as God, his payment is infinite. His atonement power is infinite. As man, he can actually bear our sins, although he had none. The punishment that we deserve, Christ took in our place. When we dare to trust him for that, he not only forgives our sins, he gives us his righteousness legally. We have a righteous standing. The Holy Spirit will, will convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment every time. Nobody trusts Christ without being convicted of sin, righteousness and judgment. You don't do that. He does it. Sin, I got it, and it's on me. There are a lot of reasons I do the things I shouldn't do, but ultimately I'm selfish. I'm a hedonistic little devil, and I sin, and I still sin. And you know what? Uh, we have very dramatic stories about alcoholics and drug addicts. Every person in this room's a sin addict. We've got a sin nature. Walk in the Spirit, you won't carry out the desire of sin nature. We're all addicted to sin. Before, during, and after, we're regenerate, right? So the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. We got it. It's our fault. We're estranged from God, and it's on us. Righteousness, we need it, and we can't crank it out. No matter how Baptist you are, Buddhist you are, fundamentalist you are, righteous you are, moral you are, you can't be good enough to earn God's salvation. And then judgment, sin, righteousness, and judgment, it's coming. But where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And when you put the life of Christ and the mission of Christ, uh, or you put the birth narratives in that context, it all lines up you know, so beautifully. You couldn't make all this stuff up. It's just incredible. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the incarnation of the Son of God as the real meaning of Christmas. The babe in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. And I pray that for those of us who are believers, we realize this is a special time of the year for us to reflect, to draw closer to the Savior, and to share the good news about the Savior. For anyone here this morning who's not trusted from the depth of their heart, recognizing their sin, their inability to be good enough to go to heaven, and the judgment that that they owe to you, that you'd open their hearts to trust Jesus Christ alone for salvation, realizing that he won't just forgive them, but he'll give them a whole new capacity to know, love, and serve the babe in the manger. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.